This is Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross, along with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. We are joined now by CBS News' Margaret Brennan, Face the Nation moderator and chief foreign affairs correspondent. Looking at your rundown, Margaret, for this weekend's guests, former Attorney General Eric Holder, one of the big ones here. What's your focus this weekend? Yes, uh, this is going to be an important conversation with a key voice as the former attorney general. He knows the Justice Department and the scale of the big uh, dilemma facing, frankly, the current attorney general, Merrick Garland, with a slew of legal issues facing the former president, which is why that special counsel was appointed. So I am interested in thoughts on that from the former attorney general. But I know he is most focused in this role as private citizen on redistricting. That's the redrawing of congressional maps. It has a big influence in the outcome of potential elections and shifts in power. We're already looking at 2024. So uh, he wants to talk about that um, ahead of what is a December 7th hearing before the Supreme Court to talk about uh, Moore versus Harper. That's a key redistricting case. Yeah, redistricting was a huge conversation for the last two years. And then we certainly saw what that looked like in New York, for example, versus other states. Uh, Republicans seem to have done a better job of protecting some of their seats or expanding it versus Democrats that maybe didn't do such a good job of it. Well, it depends on where you're looking. Um, you know, Democrats did uh, get some redistricting in Maryland and New York that in hindsight, Eric Holder said those weren't the maps he would have drawn. They were they did favor Democrats or were thought to, but honestly, it may have backfired for them. Um, but in other states, uh, yes, uh, there are criticism that, that he has among um, his fellow Democrats in regard to redrawing of districts that he would argue favored Republicans. Um, we want to talk to him about what the bottom line is here. This Supreme Court hearing is getting a lot of focus and attention from both conservatives and from liberals, um, Moore versus Harper. I'm also interested, if you don't mind, we switch uh, gears here a little bit about the rail strike. What we were talking about in the newsroom this morning is... Joe Biden is, I mean, he has made a career of, you know, claiming that he fights for labor, he, you know, working class, and then obviously loves trains. And here he is basically coming down, um, you know, forcing unions to try and yeah. accept a deal. Does that surprise you? I mean, what's happening? What's the conversation there? I, I saw a tweet from Robert Reich, for example, former labor secretary, saying we're in the second golden age where, um, or gilded age, where, you know, the, the railroad barons are just getting their way from the government. And that seems odd coming from a Biden administration. <laughs> it is such an interesting uh, political position for um, the president and his White House to be put in because um, that alliance with labor leaders uh, had been a real political asset that the president talked up. So to put union members in a position where he was literally going to Congress to force them to go back to work when they said they weren't getting benefits they deserved um, was tough. The president has emphasized that uh, the White House has participated in the negotiations. You know, if you remember earlier in the fall, uh, really helped to orchestrate what had been a tentative agreement. It's just that some some of those hard issues still weren't resolved. But there was a 24% pay increase. There were um, more generous benefits in the deal that did pass. The thing that did not pass was a standalone bill in regard to paid sick leave. And that's what failed. And that is still going to disappoint union members uh, who, who wanted that. Um, but the president would argue that he was in this position where he had to force the issue given 
where we are in the calendar on the cusp of Christmas, a key retail season where the arteries of the economy need to be free flowing, um, or it could add to what is already, for many people, a crippling level of inflation. And on the economy this morning, just in the last, you know, a little bit or so, we're getting this new jobs report for November, 263,000 jobs added in November and wages are up. I think a lot of people are surprised by that number. We thought maybe the economy would be cooling. What's the talk in Washington, D.C. this morning over that? Well, you know, some of these uh, data points are going to be very much parsed. Um, and I know they, they just recently crossed, so I haven't um, parsed them fully yet. But the, the headline is that they are a bit bit lagging, but they show that in November there was job growth. So the concern is in the marketplace or has been, though we've had a good few days in the markets, that, that the concern has been that there would be future job cuts. We're seeing headlines, remember, particularly in like the tech space, for example, uh, in the media space of layoffs happening right now. And those layoffs aren't reflected in the number that we got today. So those forward-looking indicators um, may be suggesting, as we heard from uh, the Federal Reserve, that uh, you know there may be a reason to pull back on some of the attempts to raise rates as quickly as those central bankers have been because they don't want to cause a recession. And then just as a final question, uh, we watched a little bit yesterday, uh, President of France, Emmanuel Macron at the White House, and then, uh, you know, this this first state dinner last night. Um, you know, what are your thoughts here uh, about moving forward with France? I mean, we actually had some kind of rough issues under the Trump administration, the Biden administration seeming to want to try and, and patch things up, but also a state dinner. Those are always just kind of interesting to watch. Interesting and really a sign that the White House is um, going back to pre-pandemic uh, life. We haven't seen a state dinner in, in years, literally. Um, and this one was a huge one, star-studded, uh, packed tent. Um, and then we also saw an important message being sent by the president to a key ally, France, uh, which is not just our oldest in terms of helping Americans overthrow the British, uh, but uh, an important voice in Europe right now. Um, in standing up to Russia in that continued war in Ukraine. The Biden White House would like to strengthen the alliance um, with Europe and France to also stand up to an increasingly aggressive adversary in China. And that's where it gets a little tougher. So that's where the Biden administration has to nudge some of the European leaders like Emmanuel Macron to perhaps go a little tighter in standing up to economic and trade distortions that China, the second largest economy in the world, has been causing. CBS News' Margaret Brennan, Face the Nation moderator and chief foreign affairs correspondent. Margaret, always good to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington, an evergreen playground blessed by an unusual variety of natural attractions. The towering mountain. Our resident historian, Felix Bennell, joining us all Fridays, every Friday morning for all over the map. He is here now. This is a quick look at stories behind local places and things. And this week, I saw this on Facebook. You posted a video of this. It's everywhere. And I was like, I need to know more about this. And then you were here this morning, hiding in plain sight in downtown Seattle for decades until a local historian found it. A secret observatory, and you got to go. Yeah, the story comes to us courtesy of my friend David Williams, the author of several terrific local history books, most recently Home Waters about Puget Sound and Too High and Too Steep about Danny Regrade. 
A professor in Switzerland sent him some downtown Seattle photos, including one of the 1909 Central Building on 3rd Avenue between Marion and Columbia Streets. That building's still there, of course. Now, on the southwest corner of that eight-story building, David could see a little structure, 20 by 20 feet, with windows and a big sign that said, Chamber of Commerce Observatory. David had never seen that before, and he knows his downtown history. He did some checking on Google, and sure enough, the structure was still there on top of the building at the corner of 3rd and Columbia. He posted photos on Twitter, and after I got over my extreme jealousy at his discovery, <laughs> did you know local historians have been shown to be among the most petty and jealous professionals you'll ever meet? I don't know what that is. Anyhow, science. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're all fighting over the same crumbs of history. Now, Dave was a nice guy. He didn't mind when I invited myself along after he arranged with building management to get a closer look. Now, the observatory is not in the astronomical sense of the word. What this cool little structure is essentially is the original Space Needle or Columbia Tower, as far as being a public place to view the city. 1909 was a big year. It's when we had the World's Fair on the UW campus, right, the AYP. Now, you can see the uh, Elliott Bay, the Olympics. But this predates those buildings by decades. It even predates the Smith Tower by five years. Now, what David Williams figured out was that the observatory was commissioned by the Chamber of Commerce, who had their headquarters in the top floor of the central building from 1909 until 1918. And even though on Google Maps and from the street it looks like the windows have been boarded up, they actually haven't. It just has blinds that were closed. So with help from building management, we got up there, we opened the blinds, we saw the view, and even from just the top of an eight-story building and on a rainy day, it was pretty spectacular. It gave David a pretty cool idea. I think it'd be cool as a writer-in-residence spot, and it seems like it wouldn't take a lot of work to make that into a usable writer-in-residence office space. I mean, you know, it's a, like a downtown thing. You know, here's the city trying to promote people to get back to Seattle, to downtown. You know, and access is easy by stairs from the eighth floor. It looks like it's been used by an, as an office or like a break room or something for years. It's not ADA accessible, of course. But I think it'd be a good place to put, I don't know, maybe a radio historian's special Ooh. studio. I just, just, <laughs> yeah. just yeah. me. David thought about a writer. I thought a radio. Now, it was the only observatory in town from 1909 until 1914 when the Smith Tower opened a few blocks away. The chamber had their offices there until 1918 when the Mountaineers Club moved in. Now, David scoured the archives of the Mountaineers, checked all the other usual places, talked to all the other usual history suspects. But after 1918, the trail goes cold. But it's got to be out there. There's got to be some additional information somewhere. And we're just not looking in the right place or found the right people. So who knows? If there's someone in, within the sound of my voice who knows anything about that observatory space, maybe somebody worked there in the last couple decades or knew something about the original use of it, I would love to find out more. And David would as well. So get, get in touch by email or the text line. It is so cool. It is. Yeah. Really, it's, and it's right there. Once you see it, you'll never unsee it. I've walked past yeah. that building millions of times. I've never noticed it before, but it's right there. It's part of the building. It's integral to the structure. It's why they haven't torn it down. It's just, it's there forever. And it's amazing. You, uh, you tweeted some pictures of this and I I'm did, still, yeah. I can't, I've like clicked through all three of them just over and over. I want to go. And it's just again. crazy. And if you're standing on third Avenue, look up and it's right there. Like it's just been hiding, literally hiding in plain sight is a cliche, but it never has applied to anything more perfectly than this hidden secret observatory in downtown Seattle at third and Columbia. And if you know know what it is. Our text line 888-973-5476-888-973 Cairo. Help a Felix out. <laughs> and if you are a downtown booster of some kind, whether you are the Chamber of Commerce or the Downtown Association, I like this idea of like putting someone there. An artist, yes. a, a writer, a, somebody that could like see the city and then sell the city and tell yeah. our stories and, you know, it's tell a, the real stories about downtown. Yeah, like the Fremont Bridge has a writer. Exactly. Yes. Kind of, that's what David's idea was. Yeah. Really cool idea. So let's see what happens. Fantastic. 
Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien. Travis Mayfield is with us. We want to talk about the big one, and we do this occasionally, but there's some hopeful news out of the University of Washington uh, and the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. We have Professor Jeff Berman on with us to talk about some hopeful news, I guess, if, if we can talk the big one and hopeful news, but that our bridges might fare better than we thought. Jeff. Uh, we just uh, completed a, some research supported by the Washington State Department of Transportation, where we were looking at the impacts of the Cascadia subduction zone magnitude nine earthquake on bridges in western Washington. And the findings are happier uh, than some <laughs> of the previous uh, previously thought conditions. Yeah, um, it, it surprised me because, you know, a, a, a truck hit the Skagit Bridge and that thing was considered derelict. So how is it that the, the big earthquake, the bridges could survive that? First thing is we need to draw a box around the study a little bit. And and so the, the first piece is, is that we studied the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, so the magnitude 9 earthquake. The the findings might be a little bit different when we look at like a Seattle fault earthquake that's really close, close by to, say, you know, downtown Seattle. It goes right under Elliott Bay. But one of the issues uh, with the Cascadia subduction zone is it's actually a really long way away from the metro Seattle area and, and a lot of the development around the Puget Sound. And so as we are really far away, the ground motions, the kind of shaking from the earthquake, they dissipate with distance. Couple that with the fact that WashDOT had a seismic retrofit program for their bridges for you know, I, the last 25 or 30 years, and they've made significant progress and they've worked really hard on kind of the common failure modes for these bridges in earthquakes. And uh, it's been effective. Now, the lesson from some of this work has been that when you get closer to the coast, talk about, you know, 101 going north, south uh, along the peninsula from Forks down into Aberdeen and the shaking from from a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake there will be very, very intense. And uh, and we do expect bridges to be damaged closer to the coast. But the, the good news is, is that for a Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, when we get into the Seattle metro area, the results of our of our studies where we modeled a, a whole bunch of typical highway overpass bridges that, that we've been looking at. The results are really promising, and we don't expect kind of the level of destruction that was maybe expected before. I want to draw a line under something you just said, and that is the standard highway overpasses, because it, just kind of looking through some of your findings, it looks like some of the unique bridges like the Ship Canal Bridge or the Aurora Bridge were kind of out of the scope of this project. So you're not necessarily saying some of the big iconic bridges here are necessarily safe. Your your work here is focused on the day to day overpasses, sort of the like the bread and butter bridges in our area. Yeah, that make up, you know, 95%, right, of the of the bridges in the in the region. And yeah, that that is extremely important and again another really important box that that we need to draw around the outcomes is that kind of special bridges. So your movable bridges like the Fremont Bridge, the Montlake Bridge, uh your really long span structures like the Ship Canal and Aurora Bridge 
And even um, some uh, you mentioned at the beginning, the Skagit River Bridge. Well, that's that's a steel like a really old steel truss bridge and that that was out of the scope as well. So the, the study really focused on what makes up the vast majority of the bridges in the transportation infrastructure, uh, which are reinforced concrete or uh, pre-stressed concrete uh, girders on reinforced concrete columns. They're the ones that you drive by all the time and probably don't pay any attention to unless you're a structural engineer. Um, (laughs) But they're critically important because they are, you know, there's so many of them that they are, you know, relied upon tremendously to to keep our lifeline routes open. Yeah, I imagine so. I, I kind of have a, a two-part question, uh, but they're a little bit of the same. I'm, I'm curious what a magnitude 9 earthquake would feel like, the one that you studied, and then how did you test these bridges? Was it a computer model or did you build models? Yeah, no, so th- this was all computational. Mm-hmm. So it's all in a computer uh, with computer models, but those models are based on data sets from big, large-scale structural experiments where we take a, a column of a bridge and we build it in our laboratory and we kind of push it back and forth and we figure out how it behaves and how it deteriorates. And then we're able to model that behavior in a computer and extrapolate it to, to be able to model an entire bridge. And so um, that M9 earthquake that you simulated in the computer, what would that feel like in real life? Well, it depends where you are. Say we're um, right here on East Lake Avenue in Seattle and UW's yes. not too far away. Yeah. So if you're in Seattle, it's going to be uh, you're going to feel the shaking for probably around 100 seconds, um, which is a long time. Yeah. Our, our earthquake experience is dominated by the California experience in the U.S. because that's where earthquakes happen more regularly. Uh, you tend to be pretty close to faults in California uh, when the earthquakes happen and the shaking has kind of like a high frequency component to it. Like you go back and forth really fast. And and that was maybe people's experience even in the Nisqually earthquake in 2001 here. But for the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake, if you're in Seattle, those high frequency motions are actually, they're dissipated before the waves get to Seattle. So what you're going to feel in Seattle is kind of a much longer kind of swaying motion. You know, you've seen the videos maybe of the Tohoku earthquake and the way the skyscrapers in Tokyo are swaying kind of slowly back and forth. Yeah, a little rubbery. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and so that's what you're going to feel a lot of in Cascadia when a magnitude nine Cascadia subduction zone earthquakes happens if you're in Seattle. That makes it sound uh, so feel... gentle, though. We're just well, going to sway it... back and forth for 100 seconds. Yeah. And so that work, too, I need to uh, thank our collaborators at the USGS. U.S. Geological Survey, Art Frankel and Aaron Wirth in particular, they've got computer models of the entire Pacific Northwest coast, um, including the subduction zone. And they, they can actually simulate in a computer what a magnitude nine Cascadia subduction zone kind of looks like and uh, and how the waves propagate through the rock layers. And their their models have been validated against subduction zone earthquakes that happened in Japan, the Tohoku event, and in Chile. So I, I just need to make sure the USGS is acknowledged because sure. we, we couldn't be doing this and, and making these advances in our understanding without that. We thank the USGS and uh, UW professors like you, Jeffrey 
Zachary Berman. He's with the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Washington. We thank you because you're keeping us safe and smarter every day. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oof. I'm a hard warrior, too, so I'm going to try that try one. Try it out. Yeah, thank you. Great advice. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, a heartwarming story out of Bellevue. Not our neighboring city, but Bellevue, Tennessee. A group of Home Depot employees found something unusual during their shift and worked together to get it back to the rightful owner. One employee telling WSMV-TV in Nashville that he noticed an envelope sitting in the aisle. Didn't think of anything of it at first. Thought it was probably empty. Thought I would go back make sure. And when I picked it up, I could feel that it had stuff in it. Had money. Money. The envelope, in fact, had hundreds of dollars inside. He informed the manager put up a post on Facebook, but they left the details vague. I got a message from uh, a, a gentleman by the name of Mark who said, that's my partner. It's his money. I, he lost it. He's panicking. The owner of the lost envelope, Jonathan Clayton, says he's grateful. Stressing over pretty bad, so I'm glad that, you know, he's a social media guy and was able to see that because I would have never saw it. So. Clayton was especially relieved to find the envelope because he planned to use that money to buy his kids Christmas gifts. To show his gratitude, he returned to the Home Depot to personally thank the employees and also leave a small gift behind. Just do the right thing. Yeah. I love it. Isn't that nice? We've heard of these before, too, because you wouldn't believe how many times hundreds of dollars is found stuffed inside like a donation to a thrift store. (laughs) So I would love to be one of those pickers through the donations. You know, you like open the ottoman and there's a mystery inside. I I love that. Oh, beautiful story. (laughs) Thank you, Colleen. Welcome back to Cairo News Radio. The G and Ursula Show is weekdays 9 to noon here on Cairo News Radio. And G. Scott, the man, man of the hour. Hold on, hold on. No, <laughs> you are the man of the hour. I've been gone for a couple days. I come back. I see this sweater you're wearing. <laughs> and I ain't going to lie. I thought to myself, self. You know, you know, I come in this morning. I'm not really on my game, but you look good, brother. So now I got to come dressing real well. Colleen, you look good, too. Thank you. <laughs> That's okay. I feel like ladies always get all the attention when it comes to their clothing. So I'm more than happy that, like, you guys are taking this to the next level. Also, I love that you're like, oh, I'm just slumming today. And, and you look great. so know, fantastic. Right? You oh. always look, look on point. His shoes, by oh, the way. Oh, yes. We won't make you try on G shoes like we do Dave. But he, <sighs> has, shoes. he has the best collection. Yeah, appreciate it. What's up? What are we talking about today? What's Seahawks. happening? You made it through this mess out here. Let's start. Oh, sorry. We want to start oh, with Seahawks? No, 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 this no, mess. No. Yeah, speaking of this mess, I was thinking about, as I was driving this morning, by the way, I for a couple of days I had been driving because I've been home, but I'm driving in, and of course you hear Sully and all this traffic stuff, and the Seneca was, it was closed this morning, and traffic was built up. But here's the problem that I was thinking about. It is 2022, mm-hmm. and you mean to tell me that nobody has come up with something to say, hey, even when it snows here in Seattle, don't you worry about it, Rose, because we got this new stuff to put on the roads, and you're going to be able to just ride right through. I feel like, was it the Netherlands or Finland or something? Didn't they come up with, like, heated roads? I feel like one of it's all that you know about this. Yeah, it, again, very small, very flat um, situations, small sample size. Um, yeah, they also invented some uh, concrete that absorbs the water, yeah. too, so to it's make out it better there, when G. it rains. No, no, but, I mean, that's cool. We could FaceTime our mama and grandmama and all them, right? Yeah. We could do, we could email, we could text message. We could do all of these things with technology. 
But damn, boy, if we got to get around to Seattle <laughs> in the snow. I mean, yesterday, shout out to my barber. Um, my barber was like, gee, all I'm saying is, is it feels like we're handling this stuff as if we're in the 30s. Yeah. Like, c- can we get somebody to be like, yo, I invented people being able to drive on the roads. <laughs> we so, don't have salt. Listen, we we have environmental rules that prevent us from using some things they do on the East Coast. Uh, And it's a different type of snow, too. You know it's different snow in Chicago than it is here. It eats the bottom of your car. Different type of snow? Yeah. It's, what do you mean? It's a different type of snow. Our snow here is wetter. Yeah, much wetter. Much wetter and thicker than it is in Chicago. Chicago's yeah. a colder, thinner, uh, just like in Denver is different. It's, like, it's, you know. I know this. I know if I want to pack of socks, I can get on Amazon and it can be in my house <laughs> in four hours. Yeah. And uh, So, anyway, you guys want to know what's on my mind? That was I on my it. mind. I'm tired of it being 2022 yeah. and it snows a couple inches or so and it's like, oh, you got to stay off the road. I want somebody to come in, and there's some kid right now that is in their room hanging out on TikTok, and they have the answer. Go find that kid. Maybe we could all just collectively breathe, like, and just, like, thaw. There's something. We we have microphones. We could lead thousands of people into the great thaw of 2020. How long are we going to keep doing this, though, Travis? I mean, are we going to be 50 years from now? It's like, oh, there's two inches of snow. Oh, sorry, you can't drive. What? I think it's a point of pride in Seattle. As a native Northwesterner, it's like, no, it's snowing. It's hilly here. It's different here. I'm going to drive into the ditch on purpose because that's my thing. It's like the Seattle freeze, the like personality thing. It's like, no, I really am kind of passive aggressive. No, I'm not going to be nice to you. Well, maybe to your face, but not behind your back. This like, is I we think are. it's a Seattle thing. Yeah. We're like, no, I don't drive in the snow. That's a thing. <laughs> I don't use an umbrella. I, that's exactly right. That's exactly what I it just, is. I just know that we, we all have things to do. Yeah. And when we have to stay in the house, for a day or two because of <laughs> one inch of snow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Businesses lose out on money because of everybody being stuck at home because of one inch, one to two inches of snow. I'm just tired of it. Really quickly, I gotta hear your 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 feelings about Bobby Wagner. Well, I mean, we're gonna face the Rams. Like mm-hmm. why what do you what are you thinking? Like, where's your mind when it comes to Seahawks right now? Um the Seahawks need to win the next two out of three games. Uh these last two games they lost were huge. Yeah. They lost that one in Tampa Bay. Uh they of course, in Germany against Tampa Bay, and then they lost that one at home against the Raiders. That hurt. Uh, they're going against the Rams teams that ain't got nobody right now. Uh, Aaron Donald is out. The quarterback is out. Everybody's out. Uh, Bobby Wagner. Bobby. I mean, we love Bobby, him. I, I mean, we, we, we love we, him. We, we do. We do. Yeah. We do. We do love him. But uh, yeah, Bobby. Bob, let's just say this. Bobby's best years was with us in okay. Seattle. Okay. Right? Yeah, like, I mean, fair. he's not the yeah. old, but he's not the yeah. same Bobby out there. You know what I mean? You know how you run into your ex from yeah. time to time and you're like, hey, yeah. <laughs> you look okay. <laughs> but the feelings aren't there anymore. Right. You're like, you yeah. just get no. that spark. You know what I'm saying? I love you then. Now you're yeah, just but now, you're kind of here. Yeah, All right. So, what's your score prediction? I have to hold up the tradition. Uh, I'm gonna, the tradition is going to be. It's going to be 31. 31. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, 31 to 23. Okay. Got it. All right, G. Scott, thank you much, sir. Joining us at uh, starting at 9 a.m. on the G and Ursula show. Joining us this morning is Felix Bennell. We have some rare breaking history.
history news, yeah. right? We do. Yeah. Wow. Long lost side wheeler ship that sank off the coast of Washington nearly 150 years ago has been found by a local of maritime pair of them, maritime historians. This is a Cairo News Radio exclusive. Break yeah. it for us. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's breaking this morning. The ship we're talking about is called the SS Pacific. It's a 225 foot long side wheel steamer, a real old time thing. Um, do you know what that is? Um, it's for carrying passengers and cargo. This is way back in the Washington Territory days. I just tweeted a picture of the actual ship or a drawing of the actual ship if you, if you want to see what it looks like. It was on its way from the Puget Sound in Victoria to San Francisco when it collided with a big sailing ship in the dark off of Cape Flattery on November 4th, 1875. That's officially a really long time ago. Yeah. Um, now, when the Pacific went down, it was a terrible tragedy. Loss of hundreds of lives makes it one of the most, if not the most, deadly maritime disaster in, the North, in Northwest history. The guy who led the search for the SS Pacific is named Jeff Hummel. He's in his late 50s. He's been doing underwater recovery of historic boats and planes with his friend Matt McCauley. Matt's a good friend of this show, by the way, since they were in high school on Mercer Island over 40 years ago. The wreck is in remarkable condition, and we believe that it is going to be just an absolute treasure trove of artifacts from this era, you know, absolute time capsule. We believe that we will find items made of leather. We believe we'll find items made of cloth. We'll find bottles of wine. I mean, the state of preservation is is really incredible. You know, Jeff Hummel's been searching for the SS Pacific for about 30 years, and he's certainly not the first guy to look for it. The fact the wreck happened in 1875 means that reliable data to locate the vessel was hard to come by. That meant an enormous search area of hundreds and hundreds of square miles, and that was made it difficult for, for most searches to ever succeed. But Jeff found an unexpected way to locate the wreck and to confirm that it's the SS Pacific through a process that should be called forensic geology. One of the ways that we narrowed down the search was to work with commercial fishermen who occasionally bring things up in their nets. And eventually we found some fishermen that occasionally would get coal. And we eventually got a sample of the coal. We had it chemically analyzed. And we're able to determine that the coal came from a coal mine down in Coos Bay, Oregon, that was owned by the owners of the ship and would have been part of the fuel that the ship had from San Francisco. It's like CSI shipwreck. That's Pretty incredible. cool. incredible. Now, they just secured legal salvage rights to the wreck here in federal court, and they're being a little bit cagey about the specific whereabouts. They do say it's at a depth of somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 feet below the surface. They want to protect the wreck and those artifacts and what to be as much as 200 pounds of gold on board. Gold. <laughs> yeah, by the way, footnote. Now, Jeff Holmo and the crew he works with have sent down remote-operated vehicles. They've taken some images of the wreck and the debris field, which they say clearly shows the the two side wheels on the bottom as, as if they broke off as a ship sank, which is really cool. Now, uh, Matt McCauley, well, it wasn't really cool. It was, it was a terrible tragedy. I'm sorry. I apologize to anyone who, who remembers people who died in 1875 on the ship. I apologize. Now, Matt McCauley is leading the historic research efforts and what he hopes will be preservation and display of the artifacts in a museum. Matt says that in 1875, many miners were leaving Victoria, headed back to San Francisco after being in the Cashier District of far northern British Columbia, where a gold rush was underway. This means the SS Pacific was packed with hundreds of passengers. They were jamming people into the into the vessel. The carpenters were, were nailing up bunks uh, in, the, in the salon deck. Um, to accommodate all these all these people, so it's not like they had tickets and they knew exactly. They were just cramming them on. So no one knows exactly how many passengers were aboard. It couldn't have been mm. as many as four hundred. And in the, one of the old books I have from the eighteen nineties that talks about this wreck, it lists all these names of all these European Americans, and it says and forty one Chinamen, which is sort of sad to see it listed oh. that way. Now about the actual disaster, it was around ten p.m. on the evening of November fourth, eighteen seventy five, as the SS Pacific was making its way south near Cape Flattery. 
It collided with a big sailing ship called Orpheus, which had turned in front of it. Very complicated, uh, unclear exactly who was at fault. But that sailing ship was, was empty and headed north to Nanaimo to pick up coal. Now, the Orpheus was just a few years old. It was made of 12-inch thick oak, and the SS Pacific was 25 years old and was clad in 2-inch thick planks, so it was really no match. And in the dark, the Orpheus was under sail. It was also damaged in the collision. The crew of the Orpheus assumed the Pacific was okay, and it just kept going. They didn't oh, hang around and try to pick up oh, survivors. Yeah. Plus, they're under sail, and it's hard to really navigate. It's dark, and you can't see yeah. what's happening. So it didn't take very long for the Pacific to sink. Only a handful of details of what happened came to light afterwards because there were only two survivors. <gasps> one who floated around on debris for 40 hours. Oh, my. And one who floated around on debris for 80 hours. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Insane. Now, among those lost was the captain, who was brother-in-law of former Confederate President Jefferson Davis. Uh, another was a husband of Frances Fuller Victor. Um, she's one of the most important West Coast historians of the 19th century. And there's all kinds of stories like that about the Pacific. Then there's all kinds of research to do. As far as the wreck, Jeff Hummel says the next thing is to do more site analysis next year. We're planning on doing artifact recovery from the debris field next fall. So sometime like September, October of next year, we'll do that. And the uh, debris field is a few thousand square meters, and uh, we're going to you know, develop some equipment to recover and preserve the artifacts from there. So this is in the early stages of the recovery portion of the project. Now, Jeff and Matt are used to things taking a long time in terms of being patient. I mentioned they've been doing this sort of thing since high school. Some people might remember the story from the early 80s. One of the first things they ever recovered was a Navy plane off of Sand Point on Lake Washington, a Curtis Helldiver. It's under restoration in Colorado and likely to become one of only two remaining examples of that plane, which are still flyable. Matt and I are responsible for 50% of the flying relics of that particular airplane. And it would have been scrapped and melted down into pop cans if we hadn't done what we did. And we, we pulled it out at age 19, and when we see it fly, we'll have our literally have our grandchildren with us. <laughs> Thanks for making me feel young. Yeah. Now, I, side note, I used to go to parties at Matt's house at Mercer Island back in the 80s, oh, man, and that held diver was in, party. It was, in the, it was in the front yard with a tarp over it. We would stand around drinking beer what? looking at the hell diver airplane. Yeah. Then the Navy took it away. It's a crazy long story. So anyway... The SS Pacific being discovered, this is huge news. This will take years to unfold, but it's pretty big news. Every shipwreck expert in, in the area knows this is the most important wreck that's been missing for almost 150 years. This feels like it should be an HBO Max prestige yeah. miniseries. I mean, like, focused on one of those survivors and, and the... And the, then the, the old lady drops her necklace yeah, over the side yeah. and she goes to sleep and <laughs> dies in her sleep. And then like, the, and Celine Dion starts singing. Do we know I, if any of those survivors <laughs> dropped their loved one off the edge of a door? I don't... <laughs> Jack, there was room on that door. Rose. There was room on that door. There was. It wasn't that cold. <laughs> anyway, not to make light of a terrible tragedy, no. but it is exciting that yeah. the history is coming to light and we'll be seeing these artifacts and learning more about this incredible story thanks to these two guys. Awesome. And check your social media to see that drawing. I was just looking at a really interesting story. Felix, thank you very much. Thank you. Seattle's Morning News. Good morning. I'm Colleen O'Brien along with Travis Mayfield who's in for Dave Ross. Sully is here and Mickey Gomez is joining us to proclaim the four-day work week is a success. Dun, 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 dun. Yay! Yeah, yes it is. <laughs> um, so the verdict is in. Yeah. The four-day work week is actually good for business. Yay! Um, after this six-month trial with about 33 companies and 903 workers, productivity was up. Employers and employees, I guess, liked it. Yeah. Productivity, earnings, all of that was up. Not just same as a five-day work week, but up from a five-day work week. Up from a five-day work week. That's when incredible. they compared it to last year's yeah. numbers, 
where people were working and grinding five days a week as opposed to this six-month trial, uh, the numbers were up just about over 30%. And the, the the employees that I read about this love it. Don't want to go back. They and don't. And then the, the it's good for the companies. So why are why not just immediately everyone just going to a four day work week? And yeah. that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the global pilot program yeah. is actually you know they've reached out to a couple of companies and none of them have actually said, hey, we're going to go back to this five day work yeah. week. Which <laughs> I think they? if they yeah. right, how dare yeah. you? How dare you? <laughs> but I think if they did, they might uh, they might experience some pushback. Yeah, some quiet quitting. As, as they they call it. Is that still a thing? We, I don't know if that's still a thing. Are people quiet quitting still? I don't, I don't know. I think we learned a little bit of this in the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Like even our own industry, which, you know, there there are two thoughts on this where, yes, we work in a very collaborative, artsy environment where mm-hmm. working with people who also are journalists, it's important to bounce things off of each other. But for a year and a half, Seattle's Morning News was completely remote. We didn't see each other. Our ratings didn't drop. Our productivity was still great. You know, yet, you know, here we are back in the office again because of that collaborative aspect of it. So I imagine other industries also found that out in the pandemic. I'm sure they did. Um, What was interesting is that with this four day work week, people still got to keep their same pay because I know opponents are out there saying, ah, you're not going to keep the same pay. This is not going to be good for business. But no, it actually is. And what they found, though, um, there was kind of a downside to it. That Mm. And the downside to that was that on that four fourth day people were working a lot harder you're going to work extra hard it's not like you're going to get a break you're going to go in on that fourth day and you're going to have to put in that extra effort so that way you don't have to check your email when you're off or get called by your boss or have to you mm-hmm. know oh well let me send you the file or anything like that Intr- but- i wonder if it was more of like a workflow thing where they just for after six months still hadn't found the flow of four day work weeks? I don't know, Travis. I, well, so I, I know that, um, I don't think, I don't know if Microsoft is part of this particular study or not, but Microsoft Japan, a couple of years ago, tried this sort of as a company, and they said our Japan offices are only going to do four-day work weeks, and they, they had the same results. that pe- Employees loved it. The company got productivity out of it, but what was interesting was the details were, your workload doesn't change. Your responsibility is going to stay the same. Right. Your hours are now up to you, sort of. Just fit it into four days. And if that means you're working four tens or four twelves or whatever, or if you're just super efficient and you got like six hours in you today and four hours, but you're still getting the same amount of work done in four days, then yeah, take your Friday or your Monday or your Wednesday or whatever day it is. And make your doctor's appointments, take the kids to wherever, like uh, volunteer, you know, like, and then that made their life better. And so the next week they came back and they were like, yeah, I'm in it. I'm, I'm for it. I'm all like better yeah, recharged. They're refreshed yeah. when they came in, when they came back into work. And what they found was that anxiety was down. Yeah. Depression mm. was down. Stress was down. Insomnia. I feel like the thing that stops companies from doing this more than the fear of productivity, the fear of earnings, is the idea that employees are lazy. Mm-hmm. Don't you hear that a lot mm-hmm. from people going, ah, people will take it. We heard that in the pandemic. They're going to take advantage of it. And sure, there was some of that. Because but aren't the they first... already taking advantage of Like yes. those people who are taking advantage of it are probably already, already taking, taking advantage, advantage of whatever. Of it, right? But I hear that stop companies <laughs> yeah. from doing it because they don't want to, you know, get taken advantage of by their employees. And I just think, gosh, there's got to be somewhere we can meet in the middle. And these studies show we can. What's interesting to me is that these same people that are complaining about the employees who aren't going to be, you know, as productive are the ones who did the hiring. 
Yeah, like, yeah, 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 right, right. Did you not <laughs> like, choose the right people? Yeah. Like, who are you, who are yeah, you no. hiring to be worried about this? You know, yeah. overall, I think a four day work week would be absolutely remarkable. Opponents say that they don't think it, that it's possible for us because then it might leave the office bare on certain days. And then you may have to hire extra people to fill in for those days off. But according to this study, that's not what happened. Yeah. An alternative Seattle's morning news on Fridays. It'll be like a freaky Friday. We'll work four days and then we'll just, uh, you know, let people who think they can do a radio show come in and try it out. Yeah. (laughs) Mickey, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Maybe that's what you're doing with me. You're just letting me think I know what I'm doing on a radio show and just come on in. (laughs) It's all love for Travis Mayfield on the text line. You can send your love to Travis too at 888-973-5476. Be nice. And all the haters are immediately texting. (laughs) (laughs) I will block you if you come for my friend Travis. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you will never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.